like the people that I know that are the most engaging to talk to are the people that allow themselves to get excited about things. So mm. sometimes they fall out of their chairs. Like they just get really excited. Mm. They like hand gestures. They like, it's just very engaging automatically because they're so passionate about something and they allow themselves to show that they're passionate about something. Mm -hmm. So only relying on writing when I'm inspired hasn't been great, um, which is kind of, my, which was my mindset for a while. Um, and I've started knowing that just letting your mind kind of relax into something that isn't super important necessarily. It isn't like earth shattering or anything, but just the process of moving your hand and of putting words on paper mm -hmm. is so helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, and then throughout those free writes, you're gonna inevitably get ideas. Your life is your life and you're already living it. Like don't wait for things to start. Just like make them start, like do things that you love in the now. Mm -hmm. And if I keep spending my time just waiting around for some weird arbitrary moment for something to happen, mm -hmm. that's, just, that's just not good. So I should just do things now. Hello and welcome back to the Bigger Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Jiao. And today I am very lucky to be joined with the main editor for Lamplighter, the co-concert master for NMH Symphony Orchestra, and also retired cross-country runner, <laughs> Lulu. How, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's going pretty good. How are you doing, Shannon? Good. Let's jump straight into it, yeah? Yeah, sounds good. So first question for you, what is your purpose and why do you work so hard to keep yourself so busy all the time? That is, that's a big question. Um, let me think. I think my purpose is, you know, I'm, I'm like what? I'm 17 years old. I yeah. still don't know much about the world. Definitely. I like, I know some things. I don't know a lot. I think my purpose, how it feels right now is just to kind of keep exploring as much as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. I really, I'm someone who really likes control. Like I feel like I would describe myself as type A, mm -hmm. but I've found that my purpose lately has really been trying to undo that and trying to say like, spontaneity is really good doing things you're scared of is really good and kind of knowing that both joy and the best parts of like life neither of those can be curated or planned mm -hmm. so I feel like my purpose right now has really just been kind of going with the flow and taking the bad things and the good things as they come which sounds really cliche and like I'm mm -hmm. not really a very positive person on the whole so it <laughs> sounds kind of out of character but um really taking things as they come and knowing that like I will find I will get something out of everything that happens in my life. Mm -hmm. um, whether that be it's a person I meet or something that happens that is good, seems good or bad. Um, mm -hmm. So just letting things happen and really like learning something from it. I just really yeah. want to learn. I got you. That's that's an interesting way of approaching it because you, you mentioned at the start that you used to be a you know, type A person or you used to be a very competitive type of person and sort of shifted. So how did you shift and how do you think sort of st stopping cross country has helped you shift? Or not, not help you shift, but made you shift? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I will say that I don't think I'm no longer a type A person. I th still think I'm very type A. I'm just mm. trying to, like, be a little less type less, A. So I think yeah. it'd be good for my psyche, you know? Um, but I think you asked kind of how that related to the... Cross-country. Yeah, the cross-country. I think that's a really good question because basically, I mean, I guess I can get into this now. I obviously ran cross-country for years and years and years, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I was pretty good at it. And I did well, um, and I'm also a really competitive person mm -hmm. that comes with my personality. <laughs> so as the years went on, I liked cross-country less and less, um, and I kind of pushed harder and harder. And I, there were some years, like my last year was my freshman, sophomore, and junior year of high school, where I was like, I literally despise this sport so much. Like, hmm. I would be, like, wa waiting to get ready for a race. I'd be like, I would rather, like, chop off my leg than run this race right now. Like, I really, really? don't want to do this. Mm. And I hated it, but I was like, 
almost gaslighting myself. You know, I was like, there's no way you hate a sport you're good at. Like, that's not how it works. Like, mm -hmm. you're good at this. You're supposed to love it. Like, everyone else loves it. Mm -hmm. So I was really having a lot of trouble with that. And because of my type A-ness, because of how I am, I, like, didn't give myself the space to quit. I told myself, I was like, there's no reason for you to quit. You know, I started having these episodes after races where I would be, like, hospitalized. I'd be kind of incapacitated. I couldn't see. I would start seeing spots while I was running. Um, and it was really scary. And my parents were both like, Lulu, like, you really can't do this anymore. Like, as your parents, we can't watch it. Like, it's unsafe. Like, mm -hmm. this isn't something that's good for you. But I kept telling myself, like, no, it's not that bad. Like, it's really not that bad. I'll just keep going. Um, and I think that's where that kind of type A, the controlling thing comes mm -hmm. in. Because I was, I would, like, say to myself, I'd be like, why am I crying over having to run this race? I hate it so much. But mm -hmm. there's no way I could hate it because I feel like there's nothing actually wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of a back and forth for a while, which was a big battle in my own mind. And finally... I had this last race. It was horrible. I like, there was an ER doctor. It was, it was everything. And I was like, wow, like this is the moment. Like I really need to stop. So that mm. was finally the moment I allowed myself to stop, mm. but it was really scary for me kind of how far I let myself go mm. down that road before yeah. I was like, I can stop something I hate. Like it was so <laughs> difficult for me. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't know why I'm doing this to myself, but I don't know. It's a mystery, but I finally, I finally walked away. That seems like a very hard thing to do to drop out of. I mean, for you to go through that process and all that time, all the suffering and finally making that decision, that must be a very big decision at that time, right? It, it was big. It's still kind of big yeah. um, for me a lot. I mean, I'm a lot of people know me for my running, which yeah. is really hard for me. So people come up to me, they're like, oh, like you used to be, used to be a runner. Like you're still <laughs> a runner though. And I'm like, no, I'm actually not. I kind of quit. Uh -huh. And people, a lot of people don't understand why I would quit because yeah. um, I was like really good at it. People don't understand why I didn't go to college for it. Mm -hmm. um, and people keep, keep bringing it up. And a lot of people, they all mean well. They're like, wow, like you used to be so fast. I've had mm -hmm. a lot of people being like, um, I would love to watch you race, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's just, it's hard to hear that and to yeah. know that I still quit. And I know it's the right decision for me. Um, but as mm -hmm. someone who's competitive, as someone who really loves running, just not the racing, mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's still a bit of a conflict for me, um, yeah. even now. Cause you mentioned how you, you hate running the race every single time. Did you love running cross country before, or it's just that, you know, the more competitions and you get burnout and everything? I think it's a bit of a mix, you know, it's definitely, it, it remained a love hate relationship to the very end, you know, yeah. like I would be so miserable before the race. And then once it was done, because I put so much emphasis on those races and like, mm. I would think about them for weeks and weeks and like judge based my moods off how I did in the races, like everything. Yeah. Because of that, when I was done, I'd be like euphoric, you know, only yeah. for like a little bit. So it was that trade off the whole time. I mean, I started running cross country when I was, I think, eight years old. And uh -huh. um, from the beginning, like my first my first year, I kind of liked it. And every year I started to dislike it a little bit more and get a little more stressed. And it kind of like built yeah. up and this like balance kind of started to go the other Shift, direction yeah. of like it used to be more good than bad. And then it kind of shifted. Mm. Um, so. It was definitely a buildup throughout the years and every single year just felt more intense for me, I think. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your competitiveness and how it sort of made you stay in the yeah. sport because you, even though you didn't like it, you know, for other people, it's easy to walk away. But for you, it's hard because you, you're so competitive and you, you are pretty good, yeah. uh, honestly, like you yeah. win almost every single time. No, not almost every single time, but you've won a lot of awards yeah. and you've, made a lot of achievements. So how did you become so competitive? See, that's that's a really great great <laughs> question. Um, I feel like I was born a little bit competitive. I've just always been someone, I'm very like um, conscientious. I'm very controlled about everything in my life. You know, as a kid, like 
I wanted total control over my bedroom. I was like, mom, like, I don't like the color of my floors. I'm going to paint them. She was like, um, okay. <laughs> so I was 10 years old and I pulled all the furniture out of my room and I painted my floors robin's egg blue and I just did it. And I was like, this is what I want. Like, this is how I want things to be. So I've always been very particular. I've been mm -hmm. very like controlled. Um, I like things, like I have a very strong taste in things. Um, I don't know if, I feel like that has something to do with competitiveness. It feels like it does. Um, and I've just always been very much like, I, if I do something, I want to do it really well. Like if I'm going to do anything, I don't want to just do it. Like I don't want to half-ass it. I really want to mm. do it. So I think that's kind of been my mindset with everything, you know, my whole life. Like when I was little, I would build a tree house. I would mm. really build a tree house. Like I would be out there all day, like nailing nails into boards. And like, I was just, I wouldn't mm. stop until I did it well. Mm. So I think that's kind of where that comes from is like a want to do if I do things to just jump just fully into do, it. And do you, do you sort of have that perfectionist mindset in it as well? Or it's more of just, you want to do things with your own hands and you want to do it by yourself. I think I'm definitely a perfectionist. Like, uh -huh. I don't think I can argue with that. Um, I, because I have a strong taste in things, I like things to be a certain way. Um, and I really, you know, I'm the type of person that gets mad at myself if I can't be good at something like my first try. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> if I'm like, I'm like, oh, like if I'm not a natural, like I'm just not going to do it. And that's, <laughs> I need to work on that. But um, it's that's definitely been kind of also how I think my whole life too, I think. Because I think with perfectionism, one big thing that goes with it, well, two two things. The good thing is that you excel in many things and yeah. you get really competitive in a lot of things. And for you, say, writing, you're mm. main editor for Lamplighter for say orchestra you're the you know co-master co did i say concert right? master co-concert yeah. Co co yeah and also um you know cross country obviously yeah. but also would would fear of failure like that be a part of it because that's that's like a you know bad side that sort of comes with it it's yeah, like a no. package i totally agree i think that's a huge part of everything i do mm. i think definitely that idea kind of what i mentioned before like if i can't be good at it the first time i a lot of the times I feel like I shouldn't do it. And that's mm. a big part of like, I don't want to do something and not be good at it for a lot of people. And I mean, I think objectively, like doing something and failing, quote unquote, like is mm. really important. Like everyone needs to fail at something. Mm -hmm. um, but I really am bad at knowing that I failed at something. So I hate to do that. And that's definitely a big thing, like with running in particular, when I decided finally to quit, I just felt like I'd failed. I felt like <laughs> it was this challenge that everyone else seemed to be up to. Like so many people run cross country. I'd go to meets, they'd be like, hundred people there like yeah. why can they all do it and I couldn't seem to do it you know and I felt like almost kind of stupid for being like how am I the one that failed at this like challenge of doing this sport where everyone else seems to do it so easily and I know that's not the whole story and I was distorting it in a way that was just really hard like was beating down on myself mm -hmm. um but completely I just think when I can't do something well it really it makes me angry. Yeah, I know. And I heard from, from you were saying that you seem like a pretty self-critical person at times. And how do you think that has sort of shaped you and impacted you positively or negatively? I mean, I think it's done both. Um, mm. A lot of positive, a lot of negative. I think in the negative, it just keeps me, like with certain things, it's extra. Um, it manifests in ways that are a lot more explicit. For instance, the running, I was so self-critical to the point where I was, almost telling myself I was fine. Like I would be mm. totally incapacitated. I like be like in my coach's arms, like being held up with like monitors on my fingers. Like, and I was like the next day I'd be like, Oh no, it was fine. Like I feel fine now. I'm mm. sure I was overreacting. So like race after race, I was like, Lulu, you're being crazy. You're not actually feeling that strongly. You're kind of, you're being a diva. You're being dramatic. Like this isn't 
how things actually are. So in that sense, the self-criticism was really like almost dangerous. It was like keeping me doing this thing that was so bad for me and keeping me believing that it was okay to keep doing it, um, which I really did believe for a while. Mm -hmm. And then of course, in the positive realm, like I just hold myself to a really high standard. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I kind of do that with everything I do. Um, Both like violin writing, but also just like, I don't know. I try to interact with people in a way that I think is like best. I try to be, a helpful, supportive person. I try to be reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, I really care about like timeliness. I'm like always on time to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, almost never late. I feel like I can say that pretty confidently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> things like that. Like I just, I hold myself to a high standard and I want back to just wanting to do things well. I think that's where the self-criticism comes mm-hmm. in. Cause like, I feel like I'm one of my own best editors. Like when I'm doing work, whether mm-hmm. it's writing, whether it's like video editing, anything. Um, I can see where I'm doing something wrong a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that sense, it's been really helpful. It's like a personal little life coach over my shoulder, you know? Yeah, because when you say you hold yourself to a high standard, do you ever compare with other people or you never, you you just focus on yourself in your own lane and you just compare yourself? I compare myself to people all the time, you know? (laughs) Um, I think a lot of us do. I completely do that. I... I'll go through days where I'm like, wow, like I'm really doing a great job. I am like doing so much great work. Like I am so cool. And then I'll just plummet right back down. I'll see one person like (laughs) do something really cool. Like shoot, you know what? Like I'm just kidding. That was all wrong. I'm at the bottom. I'm very kind of like extreme. Yeah, I'm very extreme about it, Um, which (laughs) I probably also need to work on. But 100% like I especially being at a school like ours, you know, people are so overachieving in like every single facet. You know, there's people publishing scientific research. There's people yeah. starting clubs. There's people like you, like you doing a really cool podcast and getting it published. Like everyone's doing mm-hmm. so many cool things mm-hmm. that it's hard to feel confident in yourself. Like if you just really focus in on what you're passionate about, say it's no one can do everything basically is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. And being in a place like this has been amazing in more ways than it's been bad. Well, one of the more negative things has been kind of the comparison that feels really inherent to a place like this. If everyone is here, everyone is really overachieving. Everyone is intelligent and like hardworking and like puts their all into things for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so especially, yes, I compare myself and especially to a place like this, it's almost hard not to, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely relate with you. And I, especially just say with the college process, you know, um, for me, I got so you know, competitive Mm -hmm. at times and also seeing like all these other people getting into, you know, big names, so-called, and it it gets really competitive. And, 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 you know, in in my mind, I always think that sort of shifts to like a self-doubt. But then that's not healthy because like you said, you can never do everything to the best, you know, like you can't be the best at every single minute thing or because there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. You know, you can only do so much. How how did you find that inner peace and inner balance within yourself to to let yourself not be so competitive in every single thing? Like, do you that's that's no, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I think what I did is I kind of thought like in in a more bigger picture way. Mm. Funny um, <laughs> about well, it. <laughs> that wasn't planned, guys. That wasn't planned. Um, I thought like I perfect. zoomed out a lot, and mm-hmm. I was like, okay everyone's here to work towards something like yeah. a lot of, for a lot of people here, it's college. We are really obsessed with college and I have a lot of thoughts about that, but that's just a whole different tangent. I won't go down there, but <laughs> I was like, wow, we're all working towards something and say someone else is really good at science and I'm not good at science. That's fine for me. One, like what I was telling myself is like, that's fine because one, I'm not super interested in science and it's so good that they are. And like, mm-hmm. they can do that and I can do my thing. Like say for the sake of this, it's like writing. 
And I would think what ultimately matters the most, this is gonna sound so cheesy, but like I was like, my happiness is number one. And if I'm happy, like what Harry Styles said, <laughs> you're doing what you love, no one can tell you you're not successful. And I completely live by that quote. Like mm -hmm. I, whenever people ask me my favorite quote, I don't think it's particularly <laughs> deep at all. I think it's pretty run of the mill, but it really, I remind myself of that over and over again of like, it doesn't matter if you're making a bajillion dollars. It doesn't matter if you're the best in something because if you're unhappy, then there's really like on, this is gonna sound morbid, but like if you're on yeah. your deathbed, you're not gonna care if you made a million dollars. You're gonna care if you felt like you got the most out of life. And so yeah. I really, I think about big things like that and then I zoom back in and I'm like, yeah. okay, what like, I kind of realign myself and try to think of myself in a vacuum. I'm like, what do I really love? I'm just gonna try to ignore everyone else. And I just do that and like, who do I want to spend my time with that yeah. really makes me feel happy? I'll spend my time with them. Like, mm -hmm. that's how I think about it. And I'm like, someone else's success doesn't take away from mine. And mm -hmm. also success is just so multifaceted. It's yeah. really hard to like get yeah. down these rabbit holes if it means one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of what I did. I kind of tried to feel my, like see myself in a vacuum for a minute and be yeah. like, what really makes me happy? Because I will inherently be the most successful in whatever mm -hmm. definition of the word I'm using. I will be mm -hmm. the most successful if I'm doing what I really love. Um, Cause there's no way I will be if I'm doing something I don't like. And then I don't want to live my life like that. That's perfectly put right there. Is that sort of the pro mental process that you went through when you decided to quit cross country? I think you're onto something there, Chen. Um, <laughs> I think it was, I think it definitely was. I that got to this fun. point, I quit um, in my junior year, or no, sorry, I quit basically this summer. Well, I quit cross country yeah. my junior year. Mm -hmm. And what I thought is I was like, one, I objectively like really despise doing this sport. I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. And two, it was kind of this ultimatum because college was coming up and the recruiting cycle was coming up and everyone was asking me like, oh, like, so like where are you going to college for running? Like, what's the deal? Mm. And I'd be like, oh, haha, -ha, whatever, like, we'll see. But over that summer after my junior year, um, a lot of coaches started to reach out to me. I started talking to schools. I was like, oh, this is so exciting. But I was yeah. like, wait a minute, like this is the last thing in the world I wanna do. And that's when I realized how high the stakes had suddenly become for like what, how I was gonna move forward. Um, and so I basically was like, it would be amazing to have an automatic in to a school. Like that's yeah. the allure. It's like, yeah. you get in the back door, so to speak. Yeah. You get to go, like I was talking to some pretty big name schools and mm -hmm. Um, not super seriously because I, I like knew I wasn't invested, but mm -hmm. um, I was like, it was just so tantalizing to kind of have that and kind of fit oh, that yeah. definition of success that everyone was so excited for. You know, my friends were like, Lulu, this is great. Like you have college figured out. Like this is amazing. And I was like, haha, yeah. Um, but it felt like not good. It didn't feel good. And so what why I, not? I mean, why, why didn't it feel good? Yeah. Because I just mm. didn't, I just don't like racing. I didn't mm. like competing anymore. I didn't want to train. I just kind of wanted it all behind me. And mm. I'd been waiting so long for high school to be over so I could stop racing. Oh, and the right. idea of continuing was like, it just sounded so horrible. So I would talk to my parents a lot about this this past summer. And I was like, I just think it's not worth that gratification of an instant in or whatever it gets you to be yeah. like recruited to a school. I was like, it's not worth that for me if it means four years of just not being happy for a reason that I don't care about. I was just like, ultimately, it's just about my happiness. And I know that college is a new chapter. I wanna move on, like I'm gonna become an adult. I'm gonna really, like I've been at this amazing high school for so long and I wanna just propel forwards and keep doing what I love. And running would just hold me back, I felt like, and I just didn't enjoy it. So I think that really was the moment where I was like, wow, what matters? It doesn't, this is what I said ultimately. This is what yeah. really made the difference for me. I said say back then my dream school was Brown. I was like, yeah. if I get recruited to Brown for running, I will not have the experience of Brown 
that's the reason I want to go to Brown. Like, does that make sense? Like, mm. in my head, I was like, oh, I want to go to Brown. I want to do all these things. I wouldn't be able to do those things if I was at Brown for running, for instance. So I was like, even the idea of going to a school for a sport takes mm -hmm. away for the reason I want to go to that said school. And I was like, well, then that my decision's made. Like, I don't want to pursue that at all. And then that's when I made my decision. I just kind of told all the coaches that's what I was doing. And I tried not to look back. It's been difficult. Yeah, um, it's but, you know, hard. I was very just like, I'm going to make this decision and like stick with it, basically. Yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And wouldn't wouldn't there be certain points where, where, where what would happen if you say if you just went went to a school say brown mm -hmm. and if they recruited you and you went there and you raced and you'd suddenly just drop out there could that be an option i mean that was definitely the one thing holding my choice like this summer i was just kind of trying to make this decision for like months and i was like what am i gonna do like college what's going on and I was so sure I didn't want to do it, but the, that, that was the one thing. I would talk to people, like friends over dinner, and they'd be like, oh, but you could just run a season and then you could quit. Yeah. And I was like, I could, but I like, it was almost like an ideological thing at that point. I was like, I don't even want to like, I don't want to deal with running and competing at all as part of my college process. Like, I don't want to do the athlete thing. I don't want to talk to the coaches. I was like really done with everything. Oh, really? um, and I think at that point it was beyond even my experience. It was beyond like how we would, feel or how it would be it was just more like I want to kind of leave racing behind me like competitive racing I want to leave that behind me and I want to start college on like a fresh foundation mm -hmm. like I don't care if I go in and just do one season of running it's not worth it to me um and I was like I would rather get into a school for everything else that I do because I do do a lot of other things and I care about those things and I didn't like that I was getting talked to as a candidate just for running you know, mm -hmm. like I was like, I have so much else to offer. Like, I don't like that. I'm just an athlete. I didn't like yeah. that. I didn't like the idea of running at all anymore, yeah. racing competitively. And I just didn't, I wanted to start college on a really different kind of foundation. Um, so that's kind of what steered me away from that. Cause that is a possibility. Yeah. It's slightly yeah, unethical, definitely. but I could have done it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I want to really catch on to one word that you've been bringing up and dive a little deeper on that. It's the competitive racing. Cause you, cause do you still run on for fun for casually? Because I I think I saw you like just running <laughs> casually. You know, I like. Do you still like running? Yes, itself? that's a really good distinction. So I love running so mm. much, genuinely. Mm. Like I don't know what I would do without it. It mm. makes me so happy. It's just like I. It feels so natural to me. It feels like I'm really at home. Um, I had to take a break from running this fall. When I got back to it, it just felt like nothing had changed. I was like, this is like exactly where I belong. So that's what's weird about this is it's I love the running. I'll probably be a runner for like the rest of my life, probably in mm. some way, shape or form. Mm. I just the it's the racing and it's the training that I couldn't do anymore because it's that thing of when you love something, but it gets so intense that it almost like takes away your love for it. And I was really scared of that. Mm. And I was scared of kind of how it was changing my relationship with running. Um, but oh. I've always loved running. and I think I kind of will forever, which is what makes the situation kind of extra weird, you know? That's so interesting. So what do you think is wrong with competitions or just not not wrong, but like what 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 is bad f about competitions for you specifically? For me, it was completely the way that competition overshadowed everything else in my life. So say it's like track season and we have a meet on Saturday. All I can think about for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks is that meet. You know, I dream about it. I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. I go to class thinking about it. I don't care about my homework over the weekend. If I have a meet, I don't care what's going on the next weekend. If I have a meet, like every, it feels so like I, yeah. I'm so melodramatic about it, but like, that's how it felt. It felt like so 
like this big wall that was like, nothing matters after the meet because I just have to get through this meet. Like I have to make it through. It's like almost felt like life or death, which sounds ridiculous and it is, but it was so huge. They loomed larger than anything. Like, and I would also base my mood on how I did in my races. So say I had a meet on Saturday and I didn't do well. I like wouldn't let myself be happy or enjoy anything else that next week until I could do better the next week. Like it just Uh, made everything else kind of fall away in my life. This is what I felt like, like relationships, classes, any other activities I was doing. It just felt so mundane compared to like me needing to do better and better and better in my meets. And that stress was just like basically unbearable. Like I just couldn't basically and, live and like nothing that could take away from it like not not orchestra not writing nothing it just felt like everything else i was doing was just in in anticipation like say it was thursday <laughs> night like before a meet i would just like i would be doing my homework but like all i could think about was the race like wow. it was really it's like really really intense and so it took over everything else no matter how invested i was in anything else I just couldn't think, like, I'd be hanging out with friends, like, my closest friends. I should be having a great time. Yeah. But in my mind, just the whole time, I was just, like, reserved in this kind of ball of, like, nervous energy about the race, about how I was feeling, about how much sleep I should get. Just, like, it takes over everything, basically, for me. And, yeah, and you would say that's probably because of your personality and that's probably because of of who you are, right? I think completely. That you go through this. Because, yeah, that's a very unique um, experience like I've I don't think I've ever he- I, I definitely hear people say that but I'd, I don't think people feel that 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 stress and that like l- need to to compete so much just in that one thing, yeah you know, you know what I'm saying and and for you it wasn't it, it, it's getting to a point that's not healthy yeah yeah because like it's taking away other things and and mainly say things you love and say writing right yeah and I mean I think this could be like a jump board to writing. So like what what was fascinating about writing? Why do you enjoy writing so much? That's a good question. Um I think it started I grew up I grew up in a <laughs> with a dad who loves books. I mean both mm-hmm. of my parents love books, but my dad especially is just a reader like to his core. Um he's a total like that's just what he does. He loves it. And so when like growing up I would be read books every single night. Um you know, I grew up listening to like Roald Dahl, like children's books, um and just kind of everything. And so reading and language has been a part of my life, my entire life. Um, and it was like a really big priority in my family. Um, and then from there, I, it's actually, so when I was about eight years old, mm-hmm. my grandmother gifted me a copy of this book called Harriet the Spy, mm-hmm. which is about this like eight, like eight year old girl who lives in Manhattan, who's like a spy and she loves writing and she keeps these notebooks and she writes down everything she sees. And so from there, I was like, okay, that's easy. I know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm going to be a spy. I'm going to write down every single thing I see. Like, I'll be part of the CIA when I grow up. Like, that's exactly what I want to do. So uh, from the age of about eight, I just started keeping notebooks and just writing everything. Like, I thought I was really stealthy. You know, I would be like, mm. this man across from me on the bench is reading a book. And I would think that was, like, really incriminating or something. But mm. I would write down everything. I loved that idea of having a notebook. Like, that felt really special to me. I was like, this is my thing. I can write whatever I want. Like, I can, like you know, be curious about the world, write it all down, keep notes. That's kind of where it started. And from there, it quickly became kind of a journal. Like I would start Mm -hmm. keeping a journal every day, starting when I was like eight and a half, I think, or nine. Hmm. Um, And so I started keeping a journal and then I loved that idea of like having a, having a like record of my life. And I was like, that's so cool. Like I can write about anything that happens. Like I'll come back in 10 years and reread these, which I do do, by the way, it's really fun. Um, But yeah, that's kind of where it started. I grew up with books and then 
I was like, I want to be a spy. I started keeping notebooks, like, as a really good spy does. <laughs> um, trust me, I was a really good spy. <laughs> and then I just, the journal kind of came with that. And then with uh -huh. that, just, I think I always have had a love for language. Um, but because I was writing so much naturally, I just loved it more and more. Okay. Um, and so it just worked its way into my life, I guess. Yeah. So writing for you has always been something that's that's just a passion and you just, you just do it naturally. Yeah. Do you yeah. still write journals to, to this day? I do. In fact, I haven't missed a day of my journal since January of 2017. Oh, wow. I know. I'm really proud of it. So I wanted to mention it. Here. <laughs> just like for the record, it's, been a, really, record. it's been a really long time. That's and insane. I, yeah. So I have like a record of every single day, which I mean, yeah, I just, it's like this outlet for me. You know, some days I go into my journal and I write the most horrible writing you've ever written like it sounds like a badly educated 10 year old like I don't know what I'm putting down other days I'm like so creative I'm like thinking of all these cool thoughts and like concepts and ideas so it's this place where I just feel total freedom to uh -huh. kind of write however I want however long I want however short I want um and about whatever I want and it's mm -hmm. such like my entire life it's just been this outlet that I care about so much I remember one time I got back from camp um, like at this farm camp I went to and I thought mm -hmm. I had lost my journal and I started sobbing. I was like, <laughs> all, I was up for like hours. I was like, mom, I don't know where my journal is. Like it was the worst thing that had ever happened yeah. to me. Um, so it just means a lot. And it's kind of just my outlet every single day. Did you find the, no, the journal? I did find the journal, in oh, fact. Um, and it's back on my bookshelf and everything's in order and it's fine. <laughs> um, no gaps in my documentation yeah. in my life. Um, so yeah, it's just like, it's my outlet and it just like means a lot to me. Two, I think I have two questions with that. First of all, how how do you find time to journal every day? Do you set like a specific time at night for you to journal consistently every single day? And if you have like a lot of work, if you have all, a lot of other things, do you always push to find time to write journals? I guess, yeah. I mean, I think it's never been something I do routinely as like, oh, this is my journal time. I kind of just do it when I have time. So um, sometimes I'll do a little entry in my journal, like 2 PM in the middle of the day, if I'm feeling like it. Mm. Um, and then other times I'll write it like 1130 or, you know, like mm. things like that. It's just, I'll kind of, sometimes I sit down, I'll write like three sentences and then I'll come back to it later. Or maybe I won't come back to it. And the entry for that day is just three sentences, but I always want to write something. And I think I find time for two reasons. One, because I just love it and mm -hmm. I'll do any, I'll always choose to like write over any of my work like I'm like an extra 10 minutes doing my journal won't take away from homework or anything else that I'm doing so it feels like something I can always fit in if that makes sense um and then secondly I do it because it's so much part of just my daily routine now mm -hmm. as something it's like oh I get up I brush my teeth I wash my face it's the same thing like in the day at it, some point I write in my so journal used to it. yeah it's just always there like I always have I've started doing my journal on my computer actually because I can type faster yeah but like, <laughs> I always have the tab open that's like my journals and so I just it's just there. And when I go onto my computer, I'll just like write something down. So it's just become this thing that's very just like inherent and kind of something as baseline for my day as, you know, getting dressed, brushing my teeth, stuff like that. Yeah. I think one thing that you, you mentioned or well, one great point that you pointed out was that you did it regardless regardless every day and, and no matter what happens you know no matter how you're feeling or no matter how the writing is you just made sure that you wrote every yeah. single day yeah like how important is it to, to just show up every single day do you think like consistency I think it's really important I think this is this is actually a big controversy in writing about like whether or not it's good to force yourself to write when you're not feeling it and I think I've definitely done that a few times obviously for my journal I'll be in like a horrible mood I'll be tired whatever it is um, and for a long time, I think I do sometimes still feel this. I'm like, oh, like people should only write if they feel inspired. Like <laughs> there's no point in writing if you don't have like a, like a purpose. But I've also found that 
sometimes I sit down in my journal in an atrocious mood. I'm like, everything sucks. I hate everything. Like, I just don't want to write. And then I end up writing something really good. Like, so I've just found that only relying on writing when I'm inspired hasn't been great, um, which is kind of, which was my mindset for a while. Um, And I've started knowing that I want one to document when I'm in these horrible moods as a point of a journal. I shouldn't just like not write because I'm angry. (laughs) Like I get angry a lot, so I should write about it. Um, And so it was that. And it was also, yeah, I think consistency is key. And so I think you learn also how, it's also how I learned how helpful writing was. If I only wrote when I was in the mood to write, I'd be like, oh yeah, writing's great, but like it hasn't done much for me. But because I do it in all these different situations and all these different moods, like I kept my journal when I was canoeing the Allagash. I kept my journal when I was climbing Mount Katahdin. Like I've always done it. And it's shown me that like it really, one, it's just such a good way to process anything and everything. I'm not even talking emotional. Just like writing down what happens is fun. It's like good to just like reflect. Mm. Um, And yeah, just kind of forcing myself to do that. And it doesn't feel like forcing at this point because it's so like natural, but um, forcing myself to write consistently has also showed me like the extent of my writing. If I only wrote when I was inspired, I think Mm. I'd be stuck in a very particular voice. But like now that I do it anytime, all the time, it's like I have all these different voices. I have like my, when I'm feeling kind of pensive and like sad, I'll write something really like deep. Or when I'm feeling super Mm. excited, I'll write in like all caps and like no punctuation. I'll just be like (laughs) rants, you know? Um, So I think that's also been important for me. Like as someone who writes to really explore like the, the extent to which I can write and the different voices I can use because I do it in all these different situations, if that makes sense. That's so cool. I mean, is that, is that how you sort of approach writer's block too? Like when, whenever you have writer's block, when you're writing in this, you just go through it and just keep writing? I mean, I, ideally I would. There are obviously times where <laughs> I'm like, everything is horrible. I'm never yeah. going to write something good and I just stop, which like it goes against my ideology, but we all do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it definitely does. I think you'll hear a lot of English teachers saying this. So like mm-hmm. I'm probably a broken record, but like free writing is where it's at when it comes to write, writer's block. Like I'm in creative writing right now. And we do free writing a lot. And one thing yeah. I do when I free write and I'm just feeling totally like, I don't want to write about anything deep. I'm sick of writing. Writers are pretentious. I just hate this all. Like I feel that a lot. (laughs) And so what I do is I'll sit down and I'll like think about an object, something super mundane. Like the other day was coffee. Um, And I was like, I'm just going to write what comes to mind when I think about coffee. And so for like 20 minutes, I just wrote about like, Oh, I used to really like coffee, like blah, blah. blah. And it feels so mundane, but thinking through these, and if I really can't bring myself to do that, I always read Mm -hmm. when I read, I just, I feel like I have to write, you know, like I, mm. my creative writing teacher says that we should all read like writers. And I think I kind of do do that. Um, and mm. after I've read a book, I always like write in the voice of that author. Like <laughs> when I was reading um, this novel called Call Me By Your Name, I was writing super poetically. I was like, yeah. my journals were so pretentious. It was horrible. And then when I was re- um, reading like Salinger, I was writing very matter of factly. And I was, it's just so I take on the voice of the authors, yeah. which I think is a helpful practice. Like when I'm really feeling blocked, I just kind of read a book that I really like. So those are kind of my two, my two strategies. Well, that's, that's very, very valuable for listeners that (laughs) (laughs) you should definitely take that home and write it down (laughs) and use it. Um, Cause, cause with, I I was just thinking, I was just thinking about this because you journal a lot, journal so much and you free write so much, right? You seem like a great storyteller. Like, for example, when we were talking, when I asked you, how did you first, what was the cross country journey? Like you, boom, you can instantly give specific stories about yeah. a specific situation. When I asked you, for example, how did you first get into writing? Boom, you can think about the time when, when you were eight years old. And do you think that journaling helps your memory in some sense? And also Ooh. like helps storytelling? 
That's a really good question. I never actually mm. thought about that. Um, I definitely, I don't know about memory. Who knows? I mean, maybe it does. Maybe, maybe it my does. memory's like know. been enhanced. <laughs> um, but I definitely do think story as a writer or just as someone who likes writing and also reading, you kind of learn how to tell a story in a way that is going to tell what you want about that story. So like one of my pet peeves is like, <laughs> when someone doesn't know how to start a story, right? Like my dad does this all the time. He'll be like, the most crazy thing happened to us on the drive here. And we'll be like telling my mom. And then he'll start with the least important part of the story. Like <laughs> it won't make any sense. It's so boring. And I like give him this death card. I'm like, why are you telling the story that way? Like that's horrible. So I definitely think like I've kind of, I think we all have this in a certain way, like this intuition about like how to tell a story and what kind yeah. of sticks out. And so I think for sure, like being a writer, you want, as I said before, like you read like a writer. So when you read stories that really connect with you, like you notice what connects with you about those. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's a part of it. And I do, I think like being someone who writes a lot, mm -hmm. I, and also as someone who goes back and reads my own writing, like mm -hmm. I remember the things that stick with me mm -hmm. and then I can remember things that don't. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, like that's a bad way to approach something like that. Like how mm -hmm. should I write this? that really like appeals to me because if it appeals to me, it'll naturally probably appeal to at least someone else. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think just being someone who writes helps so much with storytelling. It just, it helps with talking. It helps with like communicating. It's all connected. It's all connected. It's all guys. connected. Like writing's really important. You should all do it. Everyone should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You definitely, you definitely got me on, on board. Now. Like I, I'm, I'm actually excited to write right you after this. Be, you uh, should like, be. Start journaling. But you mentioned a great point about telling stories. And I think that's a skill mm -hmm. that a lot of people actually black yeah. in some sense. Yeah. <laughs> How can we tell a better story? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think like you have to, like the people that I know that are the most engaging to talk to are the people that allow themselves to get excited about things. So mm. I think when you were talking about the guys and girls, and I think there's a lot of validity to that. Um, I think one thing is that guys don't let themselves get excited about things. They think it's like, a lot of people think it's uncool. Like, you know, the thing is like cool to not be excited. It's cool to be like yeah. chill and like whatever. Like, yeah, dude, like you want a Nobel prize, like whatever, dude, like that's fine. <laughs> um, so I think there's this like idea, like, especially as teenagers, it's cool to not be excited. But I think the people that like, when they talk, I just want to listen to them are the people that let themselves get really excited. Like sometimes they fall out of their chairs. Like they just get really excited. They like hand gestures. They like, it's just very engaging automatically because they're so passionate about something and they allow themselves to show that they're passionate about something. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that's how someone tells a good story is like, one, I don't want you to tell me a story you don't care about. So I mm -hmm. want the stories I hear from you to be something you care about. Um, so like for you, like when you talk to me about soccer, mm -hmm. you're passionate about that. And so <laughs> I would also want you to show how passionate you are about that because you're choosing to tell me that story. Like, mm -hmm. so then it comes down to what you choose to tell people. Like if that's I true. were to, tell a story to someone about like, I don't know, like calculus. I wouldn't tell a very good story because I don't care that much. But like, so we have to choose the stories we tell because I think the stories we tell are what we know and that's what makes them special. And then if you're passionate about something, show that you're passionate about something and then people are going to listen, you know? It's like when people go up to give presentations, I see this every single day, even as seniors, like people just read off their computers and it's like, I don't care at all about what they're saying because they don't care about what they're saying. Yeah. So you have to prove that you care about what you're saying before anyone else is going to care. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the key to telling a good story, in my opinion. Which is the sort of developed emotion and the passion to it. Yeah. And what what other tips do you have that goes along with it? Like how do you how do you structure a story? Because you did mention how your dad doesn't 
that couldn't find the right place to start and mm -hmm. find the most least intriguing parts. Like how how can anyone consciously work on improving their storytelling skills? I think an important part is to kind of like set a scene. Like I don't know, say I was talking <laughs> about um, I don't know, like a funny. Like, okay, I don't know if I should like say this on the podcast, but I got pulled over like a few weeks ago for speeding a little too much <laughs> on the road. And so like when I tell the story, I would talk about like first, like how innocently I was just driving along. Like I was listening to a really good song. When I listened to a really good song, I hit the gas a little bit too hard. And then there was this funny car behind me that like yeah. its, its lights were a little bit too bright. Like, I was like, why is this person like tailgating me? Like what's going on? It's kind of annoying, you know? Yeah. I was like, thank God I'm about to exit. Like it's fine. I'll get rid of them. Uh, and then the sirens turn on and it's like these blue lights like flashing <laughs> like it's like reverberating around all my mirrors I'm like oh like shoot like this is really bad and so yeah. like I think setting a scene about how something's mm -hmm. going like don't give up stories have momentum don't mm -hmm. give up all the momentum like if I want to tell a story about how I got pulled over I wouldn't say oh like the police turned its sirens on and pulled me over like that's a boring story but if I yeah. kind of set it up so that it after up. the police literally hailed me to pull over to the side of the road like um people would have a sense of what it meant. Like I'm someone who never breaks rules, like truly. I'm like 17 years old, I'm still on my JOL. Like I um, like I just don't like, you know, in, like I don't wanna talk to the police, man, that's terrifying. Like yeah. it's, it's kind of like 10 p.m. at night. It was just, a lot was going on. It's just, so then when the police sirens turn on, they're like, oh shoot, like, wow. Like that, it just makes, it gives a yeah. story weight and stories need weight and they need momentum. And so I think when people kind of, jump in and they just it's kind of like when you spoil a movie or something you're not going to yeah. tell someone that like iron man died before they watch the movie because then what's the point of watching the movie so really <laughs> making sure you yeah. establish enough kind of the beginning and the scene and just like give an image like really imagery is important and describe the details that matter that's like details the most right. important thing is what details matter like I could talk about the detail about like what color the police car was. I mean most police cars are the same color but <laughs> you know like theoretically but that doesn't matter as much as like I don't know what song I was listening to, you know, because that sets more of a scene that has more of like a sensory like association. So I think That's both true. when you're talking, telling stories and when you're writing stories that those are the most important things, you know? Yeah. And, and to add on to that, I mean, for listeners who are just listening to the podcast who couldn't see like a video, you know, when Lou's telling a story, she was getting all <laughs> emotional, her hand gestures, everything and, and her facial expression too. I think that's also a very important aspect yeah. to telling a good story too, because you, you really demonstrate your emotions. You, you get, you get the um, listeners to be involved with it. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's that's so hard. Like I, I to be honest, I've always thought that I'm not a great storyteller, and I've always thought I needed to consciously improve. It. And I'm not sorry, not always, but like I've been working on it lately. Yeah, you know, just to improve. But I think I've gotten better. I don't know. <laughs> but it's it's it takes practice. But but thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Anyways, coming back to the point on reading though, because you mentioned you read a lot. Yeah. Like, what is the value? What do you think the value of reading is? And and. And how do you, how did you develop your passion to reading? I think the value of reading is that you can't be a good writer or a communicator if you don't read. I think mm. reading, like you could read the best authors in the world and they're all just like at your fingertips and you can, you, they can like, you can read their writing, like it's right there for you. And so why wouldn't you do it? Mm. One, it's just like how you build vocabulary, if that matters, mm -hmm. if that's something that matters yeah. to you, which I think is an important Definitely. thing is to have a good vocabulary. That's how you do it by reading. Mm -hmm. You learn how to use language beyond just, what it means like you learn how like you learn connotations denotations you learn um just all these ways of using language that are that other people use that are millions of other authors use in different ways and you kind of it's how you create your own style is by reading like mm -hmm. my style of writing i think is a mix of like 
the Roald Dahl books I read growing up. Like, I think there's a big part of my writing that emanates Roald Dahl. Because ultimately, we do everything with imitation, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, we imitate a million different things and bring them together, and that's who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, we imitate voices. We try out things that other authors did, maybe, and we don't like it, or we do like it, and we choose to drop it or incorporate it into how we write. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think reading, it's just, it's how you learn to write. Like, that's yeah. ultimately why people read. Yeah. And I think... My passion for reading, like, I would never call myself a necessarily super well-read person. I don't mm -hmm. think I am. Um, like, I never have time to read when I'm at school, for instance, <laughs> yeah, other exactly. than, like, books for school. But uh -huh. I think I grew up in a family that cared so much, cares so much about books. Like, mm -hmm. just, we have bookshelves everywhere. You know, like, all mm -hmm. of our bedrooms, I had a bookshelf, like, my whole life growing up. Um, my dad tried to read me Moby Dick when I was, like, eight years old, which oh, wow. was a bit soon. But, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> he's very ambitious. So, it's, like, uh -huh. that's kind of how I grew up. Yeah. Um, where books were, like, really important, like... I would get books for my birthday and like uh -huh. that was exciting and it was exciting. <laughs> so like, that's just, it's kind of how I was like bred by my parents, yeah, I yeah. guess it was my upbringing and um, yeah, like getting read to every night, just having books uh -huh. as part of just my daily everything on road trips. We'd listen to audiobooks. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. and then of course the value of that is that you learn how language works um, and you learn how to use it in your own way, yeah. basically. And how did you maintain that passion? Did you always, so sort of, you sort of, developed that you know habit of all oh, you're always immersed with books mm -hmm. how did you sort of eventually like maintain that passion and always continuously built on that that's a you good know? question because i feel like a lot of people like when their parents push yeah. something they purposely don't like exactly it. i think what it is is it didn't feel like my parents were ever pushing anything it just felt like how things were like we would mm. always read a book before bed like and i was excited i loved reading the books before bed and so it never felt like a very explicit thing it wasn't like my parents have never forced me to do anything they've never like been strict about like they've never even been strict about my grades like they just trust me to kind of do what I love and do it well mm -hmm. and so when I was growing up they never like forced me into trying anything they never forced me into like um liking reading necessarily for mm -hmm. instance they just like kind of had it around they just presented it and so uh -huh. I think because it wasn't nothing was ever forced on me I think that's why I didn't grow to resent any of it. And I kind of have internalized it instead. I think if my dad had been like, you must read like a book a week, you have to like be better read. I think if they'd done any of that, I wouldn't be at all where I am today. And I think that's kind of natural. Like, and we, we all have that, like the kids with strict parents do crazy things, you know, it's kind of like a trope. And so I think it's because my parents just had, they created more of like an atmosphere. It wasn't like they were like, do this thing. They were just like, oh, in our house, we have books everywhere. And like, we're going to read you books and we all love like books. I don't know, reading and whatever. So it felt very just part of the environment versus something that I was like f ever forced to do at all. That's so interesting that you mentioned it up because I think that, do you think your parents uh, intentionally chose that approach to education or it was just something that happened naturally for them? I think part of it was definitely intentional. Um, uh -huh. And I think that partly because uh, my dad was like very much like a super academic, you know, he went to this yeah. really um, like uptight, uh, he calls it a power cooker, yeah. um, all boys school in Los Angeles. And like everyone went to Ivy leagues, you know, he went Ivy league. He was just like fully immersed in that like academia. Uh -huh. um, and I think he like felt he got, he knows all the benefits of it. Like he loved his school experience for the most part, but there was definitely a lot of parts of it that he's talked to me about this as much as, as I've gotten older about like what it's like to be in an environment like that. That's that stressful. And like when you're forced to do these things, you just mm -hmm. can't be passionate about them. And I think he knew what that was like in particular. And so he really, um, I, I assume I've never talked to him about his parenting yeah. strategies, but <laughs> I think he assumed that like, it's never really going to get anyone somewhere where they're happy doing something yeah. if you're forcing them to do it and if it's yeah. this really high stress situation. And then I think 
on the other side, my mom has always been kind of more passive about academic stuff. You know, she's yeah. an artist. She's never been hmm. super like into the like writing in the school. Like, so her and my dad were really different in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good to have those two. I had those two Bounce, influences. Yeah. Cause my mom was always, you know, I grew up basically halfway in my mom's studio. Like when I was mm. a tiny baby, I would just sit in my mom's art studio. And like, I learned how to use a letterpress printer when I was like eight years old. I learned how to do um, plexiglass sketch sketches, like woodcuts. I like, I can do all wow. that stuff. I learned how to use like power tools at a really <laughs> young age. And like, I got a drill for my 10th birthday and I like, I'm just good at that stuff. So I think between uh -huh. my two parents, they really had this like, freedom of like, we just want to present you with a lot of things that could be interesting, but we don't want to force anything on you because we know, like for my dad, it was like, I know what that's like to kind of be forced to yeah. really hyper achieve. Then for my mom, it was like, I love doing all these like hands-on things. I love, like, I don't like academia as much. So that's the other route you could go, you know? And so I think I just had all these options wow. and I grew up with that. And so I kind of could just go wherever I wanted with it. That seems like a magnificent childhood <laughs> <laughs> i think it was pretty good it was pretty yeah, good i mean because because what you mentioned there was very interesting and and i think that's something that a lot of parents should or need to understand because i'm just thinking from from my perspective from my childhood and from a lot of like my friends or i see a lot of parents they mm -hmm. put a lot of strictness and emphasis on kids yeah they they pressure their kids and you know, go into ivies or all mm -hmm. that you know and and what usually turns out, yes, maybe some kids get there, but then they they burn out. Yeah. They have no passion and yeah. they turn out horribly because they they were just so used to being pushed by parents that yeah. they have no drive themselves. And then they fall into like, oh, well, I can say that because that was me when I first came to boarding school because at home I was so pressured by my father. Mm -hmm. Like it was insane. Like my father would force me on everything. And, you know, I've always felt like I've never felt that I'm a great person. I just felt like it was just because my dad was pushing yeah. me to do all yeah. these things. So when I first came to US, I just like literally gave up, you know, yeah. like I was like playing video games for like the first semester all along. And, and I was like, just, you know, just, just, I was just living a hor horrible lifestyle in some sense, but then eventually I got to um, sort of over overcome it by by just realizing that you know I I I have my own life path and yeah. I have my own passions and I have my own pursuits and it's not just about proving to my dad or something. Yeah. But then it was very hard to f for me to go through that cycle, and it's definitely hard for a lot of kids who went through that. You have to time. unlearn so much. You like if you're unlearning so much, yeah. what your parents, because I think a lot of parents do it with good meaning. They want their yeah. kids like be successful and have like the best life they can. But I think when you're forced into things and you spend so much of like your formidable years thinking that there's certain ways you should be and you never get a chance to sit back and be like, wait, what, what do I want to do? And like, what do, what do I like? And so I think that's totally real. Like I think a lot of people here probably struggle with that is like unlearning like what you have to do and trying to like realign yourself and be like, well, like what really makes me happy? And I think that's really difficult. Yeah, um, exactly. And when you have so much built up like assumptions about needing to be a certain way that you never thought about why you just took it in and internalized it and did it because yeah. you feel like you had to, then it's so difficult to go back on that. You know, like I can, yeah. only, I can't really relate. Like I can only imagine. Um, but I just think that's, yeah, it's really difficult. Oh yeah, you, you mentioned a great point about unlearning and you have to relearning stuff. Yeah. And I think that's that's so important. Is um, is for for uh, not only just for you know for parents in general, but 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 for life in general is to maintain the curiosity. Yeah. And to always, always keep learning stuff. Anyways, sorry, I got a little distracted. <laughs> um, coming back to you though, how is the experience of being the main editor for Lamplighter? 
It's been really interesting. You mm-hmm. know, um, I'm one of the editor-in-chiefs along with um, my uh, my friend Tori, and we work together with the two editors. And it's been difficult in a lot of ways because when we were assigned to be editor-in-chiefs, there was two different publications. There mm-hmm. was The Bridge, which was the old NMH newspaper, and there was The Hermanite, which was the old NMH magazine. And as we were getting appointed our sophomore year to be these editor-in-chiefs, the one of the senior advisors for the bridge had this idea to merge the two publications mm. and we were like um like i don't know about that and a mm. lot of people were like similar we were all pretty apprehensive but it ended up happening um and so what that became is that our junior year last year was really chaotic like we had to merge two completely well-established publications into one mm. publication we got rid of both the names the bridge and the hermit are both gone we had to rename our publication we called it the lamplighter mm-hmm. um we had to merge aesthetics we had to merge writers we had to merge styles we had mm. what ended up happening is we had a team of almost 100 people on the newspaper yeah. and no system of organization like we would get to the meetings and it would just be like so chaotic like <laughs> we didn't know what to do our senior editors didn't know what to do like it just felt so stressful and i think it was really hard to enjoy anything because we were mm-hmm. so busy trying to just organize people that we couldn't even be focused on good writing or interesting stories or anything like that. It just felt like so much happening at once. It was really hard to transition. Um, And then this year it's been a lot more steady. We created our own structures of how things work. We have a really good editor board. So it's just been, I've, I mean, I've loved it. It's taught me a lot about leadership. It's taught me a lot about just like how to manage huge groups of people. Um, Yeah, so it's definitely been very challenging. And I think Tori would agree with me. I think a lot of my editors would agree with me. But we came in at the most challenging time to be in like a leadership position. And so Uh I've just, I've loved, I love talking to people about their writing. Like that's what keeps me like so motivated through it. It's, It's what I love to do. I love helping people out with that. I love like being the newspaper. It's so fun. Like it's something I've been wanting to do like my whole life. Like when I was little, I was like, I want to run a newspaper. So it's really, it's like, it feels really good. It's just so, it's a lot to manage, a but lot, I think it's exciting. Like we just jumped in and we kind of did it. We're like, we don't even totally know what we're doing. We're just going to like go for it. Cause we have to, we're going to merge these publications. It's going to be one, like, let's just do it. And so we kind of just did it. And I think it's been really good. And I hope we can pass it down. Now we've kind of established it. I hope we can really pass it down to the next kind of, um, cycle of editors to really keep it going and like establish, reestablish the lamplighter. And build like, the yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's really good. And, to, to think of you to managing or not only you two, but like to, to manage over a hundred people, that must be a lot. And also you have your own things to deal with, yeah. say like cross country and, um, and maybe an orchestra mm-hmm. and like other, all the other things. How do you always keep yourself so organized then? I don't know, actually. <laughs> um, I think it's a mix of a few things. I think one is that I've just never been someone who procrastinates. I think procrastination really stresses me out. And I'm, I'm so happy I have this mindset. Um, like, <laughs> like when I get assigned something, I'd rather just get it done because I know I'll have to do it eventually. Mm. So I have that mindset, which has really helped with time management. And then I also think I just, I kind of keep, I keep a lot of lists. You know, I do to-do lists all the time just to keep things like visually, like this is what I have to do. And this sounds kind of more mundane, but it's really important to me. It's like keeping my spaces really organized. So I keep, um, when I was a boarding student, my my dorm room had systems for everything. Like there was a place for every single thing, every single pen, like every, and it wasn't in an OCD way. Like I've never thought of myself like that, but I had systems for how things went and it really helped me. Mm-hmm. I have my backpack. This is important. My backpack is always organized. Mm. Um, and that sounds also kind of like irrelevant, but it's very relevant to me. Like I think, for me, the spaces I'm in really mm-hmm. impact me. So I've always kind of kept 
my space is the way I need them to be to work at my best. So I keep my backpack organized. I have certain places in the library I can work the best. Um, mm-hmm. Like I never go downstairs. I can't work down like in this silent room really? over here. I can't work in there. Why not? And, like I don't like the lighting. The lighting throws me off. So I need Mm. to be in the rooms, like, on both sides, Mm -hmm. um, upstairs. Like, it's things like that. And I found my environments that work. And I think that's really what kind of helps me stay motivated the most. Mm -hmm. And from a big thing that I heard from what you were saying is you do a lot of self-discovery. Because you have to figure out what works best for you. And so so that sort of comes back to journaling. Do you think journaling is, like, a big part of how you sort of got to just know yourself so well i think so um yeah i think like having the space allowing myself to like write down just how i'm feeling no matter what it is Mm -hmm. is really helpful and i think it's something a lot of people don't do because i mean a lot of people don't write every day obviously and then you don't feel like you can say like sometimes i write my journal like i am feeling horrible and i'll be like Mm -hmm. i have no idea why i'm feeling horrible but what i'll do is i'll be like let's think through it like and i just write through like anything that could possibly be making me feel weird and by the end i've actually like figured out possibly why I'm feeling bad. Mm-hmm. And so it's just just having that space mm-hmm. to just kind of like flop and be like, well, I feel a certain way. Like I feel really good. I feel really bad. Like yeah. I feel bad about this one thing, but I shouldn't feel bad about this one thing. Like things like that really help. Um, and I think having at least one environment where you can do that leads you to feel like you can do that in other environments. Like being Definitely. like, I literally cannot work in this room. And I don't care if that's weird to someone, but like I just can't do work here. So like it's almost like a self, not like a self-worth, but almost a self-worth thing of like, I know what I f- have figured out what works for me and I want to like keep doing that, you know? No, I totally agree with you. And I think environment definitely does play a role. And, yeah. And yeah, like yeah. I can never work in my room and I, no, I'm so unproductive. Not. Yeah. Here, so I have to come to the library. And, and I think that's not a bad thing because, yeah. you know, once you figure it out, what's works for you, you become productive and yeah. you don't procrastinate at all. If there's one advice that you can give to someone who procrastinates to overcome the procrastination, what would it be? Because you, you just don't procrastinate at all. I feel that's like I insane. just really don't. Um, like, for me, I guess, I don't know if this is advice, but like think, say there's an assignment due in a week. You know you're going to have to do it eventually. Like mm. you, that's just a fact. And so I, what, how I think is I'm like, if I know I have to do it and I have a block off right now, say it's like D block, I have a D block off, I have a paper due in a week. I might as well start that paper because it's like money in the bank. Like when I'm, yeah, when I was training for track and I was injured, I had to take a few, like a meet off, like I chose to skip a meet because I was injured and my coach was like it's just money in the bank like this is you saving up to be even better later and it's true I ended up like running a PR I I did really well like I ended my season really well and I think that's a strange connection but I think it's very similar of like if you have something due in a while and you just don't feel like you should you want to do it until the very end like it's the same it's like money in the bank if you do it now because you'll save time later it's like time Mm. is there's a certain I think of it in my head there's like a certain amount of it and I'm going to use say this 90 minute chunk regardless Mm -hmm. so i might as well use it now when i know i have the time to do it and then if i have free time later that's great i'd rather or versus i wouldn't want to just sit around and have free time now if i know i still have to do something later like it just makes me feel more stressed because then i can't relax either if i'm like oh i'll take a nap instead of writing my paper i'm not gonna have a restful nap because i know i still have to write my paper so for me it's like just the ominousness of knowing that i have something that i have to do so why not if i have the time just do it now Um, Yeah, yeah. and that's actually perfect because I was just about to ask you a question on how you balance your ultimate, like you you keep yourself so busy, but how do you balance it with your own mental health and with like socialization and with with your form of relaxing and think you just perfectly answered that like 
by doing by precrastinating yeah by doing the hard things first you find time to to sort of to to, to do the things that, that make you relaxing and and you know can give you freedom and yeah. how how much do you value how much do you think importance is for like relaxation or like re- resetting or like for socializing and all that wildly like more important than anything else i think um socializing is how we stay like one is how we stay sane it's how we stay happy it's like yeah when i haven't been social like very social today i felt like reserved i do not feel good like i can't focus on my work i can only think about other things mm. i think socialization should almost basically always come first like when you're with people who make you feel good and just like for instance like my roommate one of my like most important people in my life we just have conversations all the time and there's times where like we both had a lot of work to do but we ended up like having an hour-long conversation about whatever it is and that means so much to me because she's someone that matters so much to me and ultimately if you think about it school is important but you're like the people that matter to you and the people that you love are so much more important than a paper or a grade that you get like ultimately in the like level of like the whole world like the context of the whole world like people are so people are always the most important that's kind of how mm. i think about it is like my family my friends the people around me um will always be the most important thing and knowing how to balance like being social obviously and doing work is hard i think here mm-hmm. it's actually honestly easier than it might be at a different school because everyone yeah. has so much work like we all understand what it feels like to have like six hours of homework to do yeah um and so i think people are often in a really similar uh, and really similar situation with that and so i think because of that it makes it easier to balance the two things but also that's one of the hardest things i think about getting to know yourself at least it was for me is knowing when to take a break from work to let myself like let loose a little bit. And I still have trouble with that. Like there will be times where I want to just take a break or I want to like be social or just hang out with someone or relax in my room alone, but I don't let myself because I feel like I need to keep working. I think that's mm-hmm. not something people should really steer away from because mm-hmm. one, you're never going to be really productive if you do that. And it's just yeah. going to make you feel worse. It's just ultimately it's going to make you feel worse. And so finding how you best relax and with whom you best recharge, recharging is really important. You have to figure out like, do you recharge alone? Do you recharge with people? Is it a mix? Like, finding a way to recharge your battery is 100% the most important thing because otherwise you run out of power and then you just crash, you know? Very well said. Recharging is essentially, it's, it's so essential. And and with, I think that sort of connects with so many things that you said earlier about how you should do what you love and, yeah. and doing, because, well, yeah, well, or else you would be looking for recharging all the time and yeah. that would not be healthy. And, and for you to quit cross country, it's, it's, so, it's such a big step and everything. I think that we've covered so much today. I mean, really I think have. we have covered, so it's, it's been like an hour. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a fascination. Like everything, um, everything you said just, it's, it's, it's so interesting that I, I'm just curious. I want to know more. And I feel like I can still ask you so many questions. <laughs> but, I, you know, I mean, con- in consider your time, d- I'm going to sort of jump into, like, the f- the section that I, that with all podcasts I always do, which mm-hmm. is, like, the final three questions that mm-hmm. I throw to you. So um, the first question is, what do you think the bigger picture of life is? Or in other words, what do you think the meaning of life is? Well, 42, obviously. Have you read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Um, <laughs> well, other than I don't, that, I don't know. <laughs> other than that, the meaning of life, I stand by that the meaning of life is to make an impact on someone else. I really mm. do believe that. So I think if I was on my deathbed and I knew that I, like my existence had made someone else's life better or they'd learned something important for me or they had felt like 
I help them through something or that I really change something for them in a good way, I think that's like why what we're all kind of here for, like that's a successful life just to me. It's between that and being happy yourself. You can't do anything else unless you yourself are happy. So I think finding, at least having one thing in your life that you always love, like maybe you hate your job, but you love making pancakes and you make pancakes every Sunday morning. If you have that, you know what? You've succeeded, honestly, like in life. Like it's finding at least something that makes you happy and having at least one person in the world that you've changed. And I think all of us have done that, you know? Like we've all made a difference with someone um, in a good way. And I think that's what really matters is mm -hmm. like just impacting someone. Someone will remember you for that, even the stranger that you helped in the subway or something. Like mm -hmm. it's just about that. It's about that. Love it. Love it. Second question. Um, what are some non-negotiable values that you have for your living? Non-negotiable values. I think... Um, being reliable is mm -hmm. really important to me um, for myself and for other people. Yeah, like being on time. On time and just like someone who is willing to kind of sacrifice when you need it and you're willing to sacrifice for them when they need it. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I think, really important. And being confident that someone will do that. Like if you were like, oh, sure, Lulu, like I'll, I'll fill the tank in your car like before I come back, then you don't. That's like, that's annoying. But like I, I think reliability <laughs> is really yeah. good. I also just think, I mean, this is cliche, but honesty is really important. Like, I don't want to be friends with someone who, if I'm like, does this outfit look good? And they're like, yeah, like it looks really good, but it's an atrocious outfit. Like, I don't, I don't yeah, want something talk, like that. Talk behind your back. Exactly. Like, horrible. or just, just, just give me it straight to my face. Like, I want that. Honesty yeah. is really important. Um, and I think for a personal value is pur purposefulness. Mm. Um, because I think we all need purposefulness and otherwise yeah. we're just wandering around. Um, just going through the motions. Yeah. And honestly, just like, it's also really cliche, but just kind of openness and kindness, like being someone who, like, we all know those people who immediately you like click with them. Like you yeah. just, you don't, maybe you don't know them at all, but like they know your name, they come up to you, they ask you something and like, it's really easy to talk to them. Yeah. I think being an open person is so important and just being open to talking to people and to like laughing with someone doesn't matter if you know them really well or if you don't, yeah. it's just yeah. like being someone that's open. Being open and, and yeah. Being a good person, bring being positive, yeah. and bring that energy in so that the community feels yeah. like you feel better, everyone else feels better. Yeah. Last question. Um, if there is one thing, one last advice you can give to a younger version of yourself, what would it be? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I've like never thought about that. Yeah. I think, oh, it would be this. It would be to stop like waiting for some big moment where everything changes. You know, like uh, when I was little, I'd be like, oh, like when I'm in high school, I'll be leading this life. And then now I'm in high school. I'm like, when I'm an adult, I'll be leading this life. But it turns out I'll be an adult in like a month. And like, it's mm -hmm. not like something is magic. Like the table is going to turn and everything's going to be different. Like your life is your life and you're already living it. Like don't wait for things to start. Just like make them start. Like do things that you love in the now and don't, I feel like I've spent so long thinking about like in the future, I'll be this and this and this and like just waiting around and like when are things going to like magically poof and then everything's <laughs> like I'm an adult, I'm doing these things. Yeah. It's just not how it works. I'm realizing that, should have realized it probably earlier, but like I'm realizing that like, oh, well, I'll be an adult in like three weeks. I'll suddenly be off to college. Like it's all happening. Mm -hmm. And if I keep spending my time just waiting around for some weird arbitrary moment for something to happen, mm -hmm. that's just, that's just not good. So I should just do things now. Uh, that's my, that's my advice. Love it. That's that's a brilliant way to end this podcast. Th once again, thank you so much for coming. Today. Yeah, of it's course, of course. It's been such a great conversation with you. It's to I've learned so much from you today. Just sitting here, just in this. There's the meaning of life. Of I, I could. I would be satisfied. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And it's 
Did you have a good time here today? I had a great time here. I think podcasts are fun. This is yeah. this is a fun little pastime you have here. Yeah, definitely. Do you, like do you ever just sit here? Like do 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 you ha- have you had these similar experiences before? Or? I mean, I've never been on a podcast, so this is pretty exciting. Definitely. Um, yeah, not really. This is new for me. This is definitely unique, right? And this this feels still feels different than just like having a conversation too. Yeah, because right? the microphones are so cool, and I get to wear headphones, and, and you I get can to hear, hear my voice <laughs> as I talk. It's really wild. It's kind of cool. I'm used to it now. Yeah, definitely. But once again, thank you all so much for uh, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, for of listeners, course. thank you all so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye bye.